Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. All right. So the reading, Genesis 2, 22 through 25, says this. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And then uh, Matthew, uh, Jesus talking to his disciples here, uh, says this to them. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to to marry. Um, Jesus replied, "Uh, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And then Ephesians, Paul's writing about marriage, Ephesians 5, 28 through 33, and he says, uh, in, this, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we, we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. If you didn't know, quite good timing, uh, Dee and Ruben got engaged yesterday. So uh, Dee was a big part of the church and then went to Manchester, I think, so they could get engaged. So that kind of happened. So that's exciting. So she messaged me this morning and I said, well, that's a good timing. I'm speaking on marriage. And she said, will you mention me? And I said, I will. So there you go. I've mentioned her. Um, okay, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your, the, the Word of God, the Scriptures, which have been handed down to us and uh, that they speak so powerfully into our day to, in, into our day today despite being ancient, ancient documents. And what the, the picture and the vision of marriage that you give is life-giving, fulfilling, and it leads to personal and societal flourishing. And I pray we'd catch that vision and be excited by it, whether we're married or single, uh, that we would be excited by this vision. Amen. The comedian Chris Rock summed up the cultural mood, well, some of the cultural mood, when he said this, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored. Uh, They're the two options. And over the next two weeks, we're going to say those two options are terrible. And he was being humorous. But uh, we want to give, the the whole point of our series is actually to tell a better story. Uh, And uh, a a better story where if you're single, it doesn't mean you're lonely and it's a burden. And if you're married, it doesn't mean you're bored and it's a burden. There's a vision for both. So this week, we're looking at marriage. 
Next week, we're looking at singleness. And at the end of next week, I'm going to have a Q&A with Louisa about her and her singleness. So that's the two weeks uh, together. Uh, when it comes to marriage in our culture, the, ones I, the, the big views I've heard are, are kind of two. We live in a confused landscape. So I have a friend at work, a very good friend. He's on my team. And he says, Steve, I'm a man of the world. I never want to get married. And he doesn't believe in marriage. He wants to keep himself free from the trappings of marriage. He wants to be able to do what he wants, when he wants, go for a drink, do whatever. And he says now all his friends, they're all sort of tied down with wives and kids. And he says, ah, oh, but a few of them are getting divorced, he said, with a smile in his face. So now they're coming back out and hanging out with me. And he says, I'm a man of the world. And he says it with a big smile on his face. And he's, and he's a delightful guy. But he can't see the point in marriage. It just gets in the way of his personal freedom. If you want to have, I haven't spoken to him explicitly, but his view is if you want to have sex with people, you have sex with people. If you want to cohabit with people, cohabit with people. Do what you want. But marriage, no. That's one view. Very common in our culture. View number two is what you might call the apoc- apocalyptic romance. It's the opposite view. Where marriage is presented as the ultimate good in life, that is going to satisfy you and fulfill you and end all your longings. The phrase apocalyptic romance comes from the Pulitzer Prize winning author Ernest Becker in his book, The Denial of Death. He's not a Christian, he's an anthropologist. Uh, And he wrote about how at one time we expected marriage and romance to provide some level of love and support and security, but meaning in life, hope for the future, a moral compass, self-identity. He said, we used to look for those things in God and the afterlife. But in his book, he said, society as a whole is ditching those ideas about God and the afterlife. So we, what are we fulfilling? Uh, what are we filling the hole with? He says, romantic love. He puts it like this. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. After all, What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults and our feelings of nothingness. Modern society is confused about marriage. I'm a man of the world. No point to marriage. It's just going to inhibit my personal freedom. View number two, without it, I don't have meaning, an identity, a hope, a future. It's a confusing landscape. And into that landscape, Ireland became the first country in 2015 to redefine marriage by popular votes. The biblical traditional view of marriage has always been one man and one woman uh, in a covenant for life. And in Ireland, as you know, we were the first country to legalize same-sex marriage by popular vote. So marriage has been redefined in our society. What are we as Christians to think of this redefinition? This only adds to the confusion. Well, the first thing we always must do when our culture is confused is make sure we're not confused by opening the Word of God and saying, what does the Bible say? That is the foundation and the authority in the Christian, uh, in the life of a Christian. So what's God's vision for marriage? What does the Bible say? We've looked at three famous passages. I'm going to argue that a better story than our culture, a vision for marriage is that marriage is about covenantal friendship, marriage is an agent for change, and marriage is an ultimate romance. So let's talk about marriage as covenantal friendship. This follows on from last week. If you were with us last week, we're looking, how do you form deep, meaningful, spiritual friends? Uh, And in marriage, the spouse is to be your ultimate friend, earthly friend. And we learned from Genesis 2 last time that to be a friend is to be fully known and fully loved. Genesis 2 ends, we just heard it again, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Fully known, naked, fully, uh, no shame fully loved. And deep down, I think we all want that. We want someone to know me fully, 
and accept me fully. We want to have to stop controlling all the information we let out about ourselves and what we don't let out about ourselves and just be me. Can I stop controlling what people know about me and just be me? And can I have it that when someone knows me as me, they love me as me? We want that. The room's gone silent. We want that. Genesis 2 said we were made for it. At the heart of spiritual friendship is complete emotional disclosure and complete emotional security. Now, if the marriage partner is to be the greatest friend, it's not only emotional and spiritual nakedness, it's physical and financial nakedness. Nothing is concealed. Everything is revealed. Everything is shared. My emotions, my spirituality, my finance, my body, my decisions, my future. But here's the thing. That nakedness is terrifying, isn't it? To be fully known and, 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 and but have nothing concealed in you, emotionally, spiritually, financially, physically, decisions, the future, I will not do that unless I know my spouse is going to be with me through it all. And I can be confident to reveal that. So the only thing that enables that level of vulnerability is what is known as a covenant, a vow. At the heart of marriage, and you remember from last week, at the heart of Jonathan and David's amazing friendship was a covenant. They made a vow. I can disclose myself to my spouse because my spouse has vowed to always accept me. So, for example, traditional wedding vows, the ones I said to Leanne when I, when I was 22 years old, go something like this. I, Steve, take you, Leanne, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, cherish, and honor, till death us do part according to God's holy law. In the presence of God, I make this vow. This is a vow of faithfulness, a vow of a covenant that says, I'm going to love you even when the loving feelings are not present. I'm committing myself to love you regardless. What's interesting in the modern world, in the modern fad, is for couples to write their own wedding vows. And the problem with that is that they are rarely vows. They're more feelings. They often go something like this. I, Steve, take you, Leanne, to be my wife because I love you. Because I think you're the most special person in the world. Because you make me laugh. Because I want to have children with you. It's those kind of sentiments. In other words, they're not so much vows about future love. They are statements about present feelings. Marriage is about a vow about future love regardless of feelings. It's covenantal. The problem, you see, is that feelings come and go. And if I'm going to be fully naked before my spouse in every way, if I'm going to disclose and share everything with my spouse, my spouse better be here tomorrow and better be here in 10 years and better be here in 20 years to accept me as I am, as I disclose everything. In sickness and health, richer for poorer, warts and all, whether the loving feelings are present or not. If I'm not certain of that, I'm never going to go to that level of vulnerability. Here's the other interesting thing. As one scholar has said, who wrote on marriage, you're married to, if you're married for 40 or 50 years, the person you married is very different from the person you, at the beginning, is very different from the person you finish with at the end. And you probably end up married to four or five different people. So this guy says this. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we're not the same people after we've entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Do you see what he's saying? He says, over, over 40, 50 years, you change. Marriage, change. marriage changes you. And if your marriage is dependent on feelings, not covenantal vow of commitment, your marriage is very fragile. So the challenge is to learn to love this person in front of you who might now seem like a stranger. 
this new person who they've become. I started dating Leanne when I was 15. She was 18. She had a car. I was cool. She was really sad because she was marrying a 15-year-old who couldn't drink. So I started dating Leanne when I was 15. We got married when I was 22, straight after college. We had kids when I was 27 and 29. We made a big life move to Dublin when I was 30. The girl I met at 15, the one I married at 22, the one that I had kids with in my late 20s, the one I'm now married to at 36 is different. Children change you. Career changes you. Your environment changes you. Illness changes you. What's the point? Only a vow, only a covenant, only a promise to future love will enable me to keep being utterly vulnerable and transparent because I know my spouse is with me from start to finish. It's the covenant, the commitment that enables the vulnerability. Let me pull into a lay-by and apply this. The first application. When you get married and you're making this covenant to someone, you clearly are told to honor your mother and father who you have brought you up, but you are to form a new nuclear family that comes above that. And I speak to so many couples and have done over the years in our, in our marriage preparation and enrichment course where, where, where they haven't actually done the leaving and cleaving of Genesis 1 and 2. And so what happens is one of the spouses is still confiding most closely to a mum or dad, and it's really hurting this, the spouse because their ultimate place of sharing has to change from mum and dad or the siblings to your spouse. If you don't, it's dangerous because you made a commitment to this ultimate vulnerability and yet someone else has an emotional connection that's greater than your spouse. Number one, you, when you get married, you form a new, new nuclear family that should be wholesome and part of the wider, but it's new. That's the power of a covenant. Secondly, notice the whole point of the, the biblical order is commitment before vulnerability. I commit to you because I, I commit, and that enables the vulnerability. I know you're going to be with me. Our culture does it the other way around. Don't commit. Like, get super vulnerable, like, physically share everything, have sex, like, but don't share your emotions, and don't share your finance, and don't share your future. So what happens is our culture says, I'll physically commit to you, but I, uh, but, but I won't commit in any other way. I'll get vulnerable physically, but I, in nothing else. And our culture says, yeah, that's okay. It's okay if we sleep together or cohabit, because we're, we're in a loving relationship. We don't need a covenant, Steve. What, that's old-fashioned. If you say that, if you think that, you're basically saying to the person, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you in every single way. So when someone has sex with someone they're not married to, they're saying, I'll commit to you physically. I'll get vulnerable and share everything physically, but I won't commit spiritually, financially, emotionally. I'll reserve the right to pull out of this relationship if it doesn't work for me. In other words, it's love on my terms. Love is as much as I can get, and if it stops giving me, then I will stop giving it. In other words, our culture is brought into what's called consumer love, not covenantal love. I'm going to take, and when I want out, I'm out. If I stop enjoying it, I'm gone. But it's so damaging. You know it. Our culture knows it. The Bible says you have the commitment first. You make the vow. Then you share everything. Don't start oversharing if you haven't made the vow in any area, not just physically. We need to rediscover covenantal love. Thirdly, what about the controversial topic of marrying non-believers? I said this last week. Can you understand now why the Apostle Paul very clearly, explicitly, in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 6, says you shouldn't be married to a non-believer? It's common sense. It's just common sense. If marriage is ultimately about sharing and disclosing everything, and you can't share your faith, why would you do that? A Christian is someone who says, my life, my identity, my hope, my future is built on Jesus. 
why would you unite yourself to someone who can't understand that? Kathy Keller has a brilliant article about why not to marry non-believers. And she gives you the two options. She says, if you do marry a non-believer, your life's not over. It's not like God's going to suddenly cast you off. Of course, but hear the advice of the Scriptures. Why? She says, well, one of the two people is going to get sidelined. Either, she says, you're, if you're a Christian, you will push Christ to the margins of your life to accommodate your spouse. This may not involve actually repudiating the faith, but in matters such as devotional life, hospitality to believers, small group meetings, emergency of hosting of people in need, missionary support, tithing, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers, those things we minimized in order to preserve peace in the home. She's right. Or, alternatively, if the believer in the marriage holds to a robust Christian faith and practice, the non-believing partner will be marginalized. If he or she can't understand the point of Bible study and prayer and mission trips and hospitality, and, and he or she can't and won't participate alongside the believing spouse in those activities, the deep unity and oneness of marriage cannot flourish when one partner cannot fully participate in another person's most important commitments. You see, one of Jesus or your unbelieving spouse is going to get pushed to the edge. Marry a Christian, and everyone's together at the center. She says something very else insightful about how often she, she pastored a, a church, well, she was uh, in, in, in New York where there was lots of singles and they would often make this decision out of desperation to marry just someone who wasn't of faith. And she, she, she makes an interesting comment when she'd always, that person would come to her. She said, when someone has already allowed his or her heart to become engaged with a person outside the faith, I find that the Bible has been devalued as the non-negotiable rule of faith and practice. Instead, variants of the serpent's question to Eve, did God really say, are floated. As if somehow this case might be eligible for an exception, considering how much they love each other, how the unbeliever supports and understands the Christian faith, and how they are soulmates despite the absence of shared soul faith. In other words, she recognized what a very famous man called Thomas Cranmer said years ago, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. I urge you at a heart level, think about the covenant of marriage and how amazing and strong and powerful it is. Complete disclosure and, sh disclosure and sharing, complete security and love. It's deep spiritual friendship under God, fully being known. The Bible says, marry believers for that reason. If you're married to a non-believer, you've got a job to do and to love them and pray for them and stick in that marriage and be faithful. But choose, if you have a chance, to marry a believer. Make the tough choice. Let me move on. Marriage is covenantal friendship. Secondly, marriage is an agent of change. Don't you love the way the disciples react when, when Jesus speaks as candidly and as uncompromisingly as I am right now? That marriage is forever and it was always one man and one woman. And the disciples go, it's better not to marry. Dustin sort of choked him, you know, laughed. He's like, whoa, Jesus said that he did. What? Well, the disciples said it to Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, not everyone can accept the challenge of marriage. Therefore, you have to be given it. Like singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift. Jesus says, yes, it's going to be hard, like singleness will have its challenges. Therefore, you have to receive it as a gift from God, not force your way in. Don't enter marriage lightly. Don't enter marriage for the wrong reasons. Don't rush into marriage. Don't make a bad choice about who your marriage partner can be. Since marriage brings you into the closest, most inescapable contact with another person, that means they're going to see you so up close and personal and all your sins and all your flaws. It's going to be quite intense. We all have flaws, and your spouse is going to find them out. 
What are the flaws that your spouse will see? Let me list some examples. You may be a fearful person with a tendency towards anxiety. You may be a proud person with a tendency towards being opinionated and selfish. You may be an inflexible person with a tendency to being demanding and sulky if you don't get your way. You may be an abrasive or harsh person who people tend to respect more than they love. You may be an undisciplined person with a tendency to be unreliable and disorganized. You may be an oblivious person who tends to be distractive, insensitive, and unaware of how you come across to others. You may be a perfectionist with a tendency to be judgmental and and critical of others uh, and also down on yourself very often. You may be an impatient, irritable person with a tendency to hold grudges or lose your temper too often. You may be a highly independent person who does not like to take responsibility for the needs of others, who dislikes having to make joint decisions, and who most definitely hates to ask for any help yourself. You may be a person who wants far too much to be liked and so you tend to shave the truth, you can't keep secrets and you work too hard to please everyone. You may be a thrifty person but at the same time very miserly with money, too unwilling to spend it on your own needs appropriately and generously with others. We all have character flaws. Your mum and dad, your siblings, your friends may have accepted them or found a way to distance themselves from you on those flaws your spouse is going to find out and it's going to hit them. Marriage will bring you closer. You you can't hide those flaws in a way you have been able to. I know from personal experience. Life, marriage is like a bridge going over a stream. And the bridge has all these little, you know, fractures. They're so small, hairline fractures. The naked eye can't see it. But they're there. And our life is like that bridge. There's all these hairline fractures, but you can't see them to the naked eye. But then the bridge has a 10 ton truck drive over it and suddenly those hairline fractures split open and and the whole bridge crumbles. Marriage is like having a 10 ton truck drive straight at your heart and all the little fissures split open and you're revealed for who you are. When you get married, your spouse is that big truck who goes right through your heart and marriage brings out the worst in you. It doesn't create your weakness that you might blame your spouse when you blow up. It reveals the weakness. It's not a bad thing. It's just the truth. So when you get married and you run into difficulties because you're always in conflict with the other, the problem is not the marriage partner. The problem is marriage itself. Marriage is exposing the sinfulness of your heart. Marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse, but as into confrontation with yourself. Marriage shows you a realistic, unflattering picture of who you are, and you have to face it. Again, that is why marriage has to be a covenant. Because I'm going to give you my love, I'm going to love my spouse regardless. I'm not going to run away when the ugliness of who they are or the ugliness of who I am is revealed. So marriage becomes God's great sanctification tool in our lives. Sanctification, how do we grow holy and become more like Jesus? Because it has a power of truth. And here is why marriage is this agent of change. Because your spouse also then, through the covenantal vow they've made, still loves you, still affirms you, sticks with you through all that ugliness and promotes your beauty and says how beautiful you are as well. And because of this, your spouse will have a power in your life like no one else to form your self-image. If the whole world tells me I'm ugly, but my spouse says I'm beautiful, I'm beautiful because they know me. If the whole world tells me I'm beautiful, my spouse tells me I'm ugly, I'm ugly because they know me. Your spouse will form your self-image like no one else. So it's as we know this disclosure yet acceptance, truth yet grace, 
sinful reality yet powerful covenantal love that marriage changes you. It becomes an agent of change. Little by little, you become like Jesus. Tim Keller has never read a more spectacular thing on marriage and, and what its purpose in this. Let's listen to this for a better story of marriage. What then is marriage for? It is for helping each other become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon husband and wife look towards is the throne, the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. I can think of no more powerful common horizon than that. And that is why putting a Christian friendship at the heart of the marriage relationship can lift it to a level that no other vision for marriage approaches. That's wonderful. Some applications, let's pull into a lay-by again for the second time. Firstly, what does it mean to fall in love? To fall in love is to look at someone and say, I'm so excited about who God is making you, and I want to partner in that. That's falling in love. I can see that you're on a journey to Christ-likeness and God's doing something, and I cannot wait to be a part of it. I want to be your spiritual friend to do that. That's marriage. That's falling in love. How do you know you're ready to get married? Big question. Because you look at the flaws that have been revealed in a relationship and you say, and I want to work with you. And actually, I see your beauty more than your flaws. Internal, this is. I have a desire. I don't run away at these flaws. I don't freak out. I'm not going, ah. I'm going, yeah, they're there. Like mine are there. But I want to work with you. You can say that to someone. You're ready to get married and say, let's be spiritual partners together. The power of truth that marriage has should hold no fear for you if you're ready to say that. Thirdly, can you see about how to go choosing a spouse? Go for comprehensive attraction. Modern culture says find a spouse, screen for beauty and finance and social status. We know that beauty is fading. We know it. None of us are going to be pretty at 80. We know that social status normally fades, and often finance often fades. If you marry for those reasons, you are putting yourself on a, such a fragile future because you know they'll go. Whereas if you're marrying someone for the internal beauty you see in them, that what Christ is being formed in them, it says in 1 Peter 3, that beauty is never fading and can get beautiful and more beautiful. That outwardly we're wasting away, Paul says, 2, 1 Corinthians, yeah, 2 Corinthians 4, inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. Don't, screen, don't walk into a room and screen people, are they good looking? Uh, what social status? What kind of money? Screen people and go, I see a godly character. I see a spiritual friend. And whilst they might not have the body or the looks that I naturally arouses me, maybe spiritual friendship should be the heart of what I'm looking for, not physical arousing. Screen people first and foremost for that spiritual friendship, the inner beauty, the comprehensive attractiveness. Explore what being good friends looks like, and then see if romance can develop afterwards. Fourthly, finally, in this application, a marriage NCT. For those of you that are married, one practical thing, if, this, if marriage is an agent for change, Leanne and I do this two or three times a year. Typically on holiday, we go for a walk, we have a glass of wine, and we talk over an evening or whatever. A car needs an NCT to reveal where it's really at so it can get repaired and be, be roadworthy. Once, twice, three times a year, Leanne and I go, Let's do an NCT of our marriage. Where are we? Like, what's good? What's bad? What season are we in? Have we been tending the garden? Have we been investing in this? Or are we getting away with the minimum? Are we getting grouchy? Are we are we, how's our sex and romance? Are we having enough sex? Why not? We're honest. 
What's the balance of marriage, family, church, friends, work, hobbies, and all the rest? Are we cherishing one another or are we just assuming one another, uh, presuming on one another? How's our relationship with God individually? Anne, are you growing? Am I growing? What about our prayer life together? Oh, it slipped. Okay. Have an NCT two, three times a year. Just be honest. Marriage is an agent for change. Be spiritual friends that help each other grow towards Jesus. I commend it to you. Marriage is covenantal friendship. Marriage is an agent for change. Marriage is the ultimate romance. Look at what the Apostle Paul says, quoting Genesis 2. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul says marriage is a mystery, but ultimately it's a mystery because it's pointing to something greater, Jesus and his bride, the church. The Bible speaks at numerous points, Jeremiah, Hosea, about how God wants to marry his people. Most strikingly, Ezekiel 16. Have a read of it tonight. God finds and rescues a newborn child abandoned and in abject helplessness and poverty and yokes himself to her. He's talking about Israel. In covenantal marriage, beautifies and adorns her as queen. And if you read Ezekiel 16, the sexual imagery is very graphic. It talks about breasts and, and God becoming intimate with this woman. And, and, and what we witness in Ezekiel 16 is the imagery of faithfulness, like covenant love yoked with passion and intimacy. And the image, as I said, is very sexual. In other words, Ezekiel invites us, into the wor- uh, invites us to look into the world of our own sexual feelings, to contemplate the shuddering oneness of consummation that follows the marriage commitments. And he says, you think that's great? God's love is far, far greater. So what we see here and elsewhere is the Bible has no problem comparing God's love with erotic human love. Eros captures a human experience of desire with such force and intensity that we feel almost physically compelled by it. The attraction of bottoms, breasts, and torsos, the intense pleasures emanating from the vagina or the penis that crash through your bodies. The obsessive near delusional force of infatuation. If you want to understand God's love for you, those are a drop in the ocean. You're invited to look at the most intimate and private corners of your felt sexuality and go, that is even half what God has for his people. But it's not just that we look into our desires and understand God's spousal love for us, the intensity and passion of it and the joy of it and the pleasure of it. We also look along our desires like a signpost or a needle on a compass. And where does it point? They are divine homing instincts for the glorious union that lies ahead. Glenn Harrison, whose book, Captured by uh, a Better Vision, is the book under, A Better Story, is the book under this series. He says this, the biblical picture of marital sexual union is nothing less than an anticipation of a deeper union with the divine And whether we are married or single in this life, sexual desire is an inbuilt homing instinct for the divine, a kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. You see, our desires will never, our sexual desires will never be ultimately fulfilled in this life. As C.S. Lewis said in his very, very famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, talking about love and romance and flowers and books and nature and music and all the delightful things that give us pleasure, he said this, these things the beauty, the memory of our own past, the good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. 
You see, for all the joy we can find in love, relationships, marriage, romance, and sex, they are shadow of the true reality when we meet God and are united to him fully. And this becomes even more acutely true when we consider the incompleteness. I'm talking about the best sexual joy, the incompleteness of our sexual experiences on earth. Mistimed mutual orgasms, conflicted emotions, bored familiarity, unrequited love that bears witness to the only true satisfaction is not here. Harrison says this, I love this, our sexual interests are a teaser for the big movie yet to be released. Paul says this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ when he meets his church. That's why Jesus says at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. There'll be no earthly marriage in heaven. Why? Because the scent of the flower has been found. The echo of the tune has now been heard. The experience of shuddering oneness, union with Jesus is being experienced. And the greatest moment of earthly sexual joy was a drop in the ocean to what every one of us is one day going to experience in terms of pleasure and security. So can you see marriage is ultimately about the gospel. It's to make me like Jesus and it's to prepare me for when I meet with him and earthly marriage fades away. If you're married, remember one day you're going to be single in earthly sense. If you're single, remember you're already married now partially and one day fully. In other words, we are the bride, the church. Earthly marriage is going to fade and we're going to be brought up and consumed by the love of Christ. So if you are single and you're full of sexual desire, but choosing to remain celibate for Jesus, that does not mean you're asexual. Your sexuality still matters. And it's your faithfulness, the sacred meaning of the marriage bond through abstinence that stands as a powerful witness to the true nature of God's faithful love and that you're trusting in him to ultimately satisfy you now partially, one day fully. Let me finish. How's the ultimate romance made possible? What does Jesus do on the cross? He makes a covenant in his blood. He committed to us till death did him part. He promised to love us despite of the flaws and the ugliness he saw in us. He speaks truth to us that he needs to forgive us, but because he does forgive us, we can be naked and unashamed before him. Like Ezekiel says, he takes us in our mess, he beautifies us, and then he gives us his covenantal love. It's as if on the cross, Jesus says, I can see what God is making you, and I'm excited to be a part, and I want to make you magnificent through a marriage. What does it mean? What does it mean, Jesus' love? It means if the whole world tells you you're ugly, and he, the king of the universe, says you're beautiful, you're beautiful. Your self-image is completely and utterly secure because of the cross. He made a covenant in his blood for you. And that's why we're going to finish with bread and wine. We're going to think of this moment when God said, I'm going to marry a bride. I'm going to commit unreservedly. Whatever they do, I'm going to stick with them. And even though there's ugliness, real ugliness, God says, I can see my image is still printed in you. I want to restore that. And one day, we're going to be fully redeemed, fully restored. All our desires, sexual and every other, are going to be perfectly aligned. And we're going to meet with God in a way that's going to ravish us beyond anything in this world. And in our culture, we live for now. The Bible says live for then. So we're going to come forward. This is a way we renew our, cov- our covenant. This is the way we renew our vows to Jesus. Lord, I want to commit to you in my singleness, in my 
girlfriend boyfriend status, in my engaged status, in my marriage status, my divorce status, my whatever status you are now. This is a moment to say, I know where my ultimate marriage is. So this is for those that call themselves believers in Jesus, who love him as Savior and Lord. If you're not that, thank you for listening. This might have been controversial for you. Thank you for listening. Just stay where you are. For those that know and love Jesus, come forward, and uh, we're going to respond with this and with some song. So if I could have um, Tutti and Maffy and Dustin and Chloe, they're going to give out the bread and the wine. This is uh, just normal and alcoholic. This is uh, gluten-free and non-alcoholic and alcoholic, so you can choose what you want. So just come to both aisles, but if you need this one, come to this side. Why don't you stand and, uh, and let's pray, and uh, let's think about what it is that God committed to us with this covenantal love and what it means for us to respond to that uh, now. Let's take a moment and just be still, and the band can start playing. thank you, Lord, for the chance to come forward to take bread and wine, remembering your body was ripped open like the bread has been or will be, and that your blood was spilt, and that we now have a covenant in this blood, and that our self-identity, what makes us beautiful is not our performance, it's not who we're married to or not who we want to be married to, it's you, and it's what you say about us, and you validate us. And you give us a security that you are going to make us more and more beautiful year by year. And one day we're going to be like you when we see you. Lord, help us now to learn what it is to live in light of that day. Not to get too caught up now. Live for that day and we'll make the most of today. Help those here, Lord, that are married and whether they're finding it hard or, or great to remember the purpose of marriage as an agent for change, preparing us for the marriage to be great spiritual friends. And pray for those that are single or in another status that's not marriage. That, Lord, you'd give them the ability to wait and to be patient and to trust you and give them the gift of singleness that they might accept that, even partially. And help us to be faithful to you regardless of our status and how we live and in our actions. Lord, we need your help. We live in a culture that is very aggressively against everything I've just said. Give us courage. Ravish us now by your love again, that we might have strength to live your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.